Debriefing today unplugs people's creativity by embracing the wonder of change. It seeks inspiration from maverick innovators and change makers to share their stories, experiences, and dreams. The way we frame our thinking highly influences the way we reason. The way we act is consequentially influenced by the way we think. And then we give a meaning, we define our surroundings based on such framing. The combination of framing and reasoning affect the way we create hypotheses of the future, whether those are considered probable, possible, plausible, and so on. Today, I'm grateful for the opportunity to welcome Peter Skoblik and the briefing today to talk about long-term anticipatory thinking. Peter is co-founder at Event Horizon Strategies. Welcome, Peter, and thank you for joining me at the briefing today. Thank you so much for having me. Peter, we could agree that the world is becoming more volatile and certain complex and ambiguous and to name a few examples that come to mind that you know could have brought us here is like the increasing speed of technological change the degree of which the society has become interconnected you know uh, there are so many variables that defines our economy social and political system so we got to to a point that we're really dealing with complexity and the future is very different we would be very different from uh, from the present. The topic is is broad and complex. So where do we start from? Which is the best way to share contextual details to ease our listener uh, understanding? Uh, how can we start defining long-term anticipatory thinking and really highlight the potential of this way of thinking? I think that dealing with the increasing uncertainty that you talked about as well as the volatility complexity and ambiguity can be completely overwhelming um, and when people think about the uncertainty of the future and especially the uncertainty of the long-term future the the question that you asked immediately comes up where do i start how do i even get my head around uh the problem or the problems that we might be facing. What do I do next when I don't know what tomorrow is going to look like, let alone next year, five years, 10 years, whatever. Um, I, I have actually found a great deal of comfort in a uh, an old uh, economist, um, Frank Knight, who uh, famously published a book called Risk, Uncertainty and Profit in 1921. So almost exactly 100 years ago. And it was actually derived, as you know, from his, his dissertation, uh, which puts a little bit of pressure on those of us who have written dissertations. Uh, I, I doubt mine will be in, in publication 100 years from now, but nevertheless. So I, I, I turn back to tonight and the distinctions that he drew between risk and uncertainty. And, and risk tonight was, uh, you know, a, a future where we knew what the possible futures were and we could attach what he called scientific or objective probabilities to them. So something like, life insurance or, or whatever, where you've got a, you know, enough data that you can say, okay, the probability of a 45-year-old man living to be 70 is X, and, and you can do that. With uncertainty, the idea was that you knew what the possible futures were, but you couldn't attach those probabilities. You could only sort of sub attach subjective probabilities, which is a nice way of saying you could only guess. Um, and then more, more recently, um, Richard Zeckhauser, who's a professor at the, at the Kennedy School at, at Harvard, added uh, another category, ignorance, where we can't even imagine all the possible futures. And so I sort of 
I look at these three categories of things and I, I see them actually less as categories than lying on a continuum that maybe, you know, would stem from absolute certainty on one end, which we rarely if ever get to, you know, through risk to uncertainty, to ignorance. And one way that I find helpful of thinking about the future is that to, is to ask myself, well, which of these buckets of things are we actually dealing with? Um, because sometimes it may not be quite as daunting as it looks. It may be more of a situation of risk. And sometimes it's completely up in the air and it's a situation of ignorance. And for each of these categories, we have different tools that we can use. So that's where I, that's, that is a framework that I have found somewhat helpful in getting my head around uh, the unknowability of the future. Yeah, and that's fascinating. I actually look into this similar topic for my dissertation and my PhD, which would be incredible if it's gonna stay for hundred years and as as night. But uh, you know, night is a it's, it's a great uh, um, person and a lot of expertise and, and a lot of people are referencing and citing him. Now, well, thank you so much for introducing a little bit of, of the topic because it is indeed complex uh, and and people are becoming more familiar with uncertainty and the concept of ignorance as we as we are living today pandemic and different challenges that we we might face in in the futures and in one of your articles you write the practice of strategic foresight the rigorous examination of imagined alternative futures to better sense shape and adapt to emerging futures can put boundaries around future uncertainty while enabling better strategy in the present. And, and back to what you said before, it's very hard also to understand uncertainties and imagine uncertainties and, and futures. But by putting boundaries on something, we can say that such elements are at least defined in their attribute to some extent. So it, it sounds like that there is a gentle balance between uh, uh, you know, the complete uncertainties and trying to, to put boundaries around these uncertainties. I think that's right. And I think there's, you know, there, there's obviously no clear boundary. It's impossible to put precise boundaries on, on what could happen in the future. But I, I think it's sort of neither true nor useful to say that anything could happen in the future. And so what we can do is employ various tools like scenario planning, to begin to think about, well, what are the critical uncertainties that could affect the future? How might they combine in ways that are perhaps stretch the limits of our imagination, hopefully do stretch the limits of our imagination, but are nevertheless plausible. And once we start to construct these, you know, plausible imagined futures, we can get a better sense of what we might be facing down the road. And it helps define, define that space a little bit. It gives us a starting place, at least. It doesn't give us a, a clear answer, but as you said, it, it helped put some, some guardrails around uh, the, the uncertainty or our ignorance um, of the future. And that, that, at least by having a starting place, um, we, we can begin to get to work on crafting strategies that will set us up, uh, you know, not for any one particular future necessarily, but no matter what future comes to pass. And to that, you bring up a fantastic case studies on the US Coast Guard that they apply. They use strategic foresight and specifically scenario planning to adapt themselves, to advance their practice, to be more future ready, future prepare to them for the uncertainties that you mentioned before in the introduction. 
how does um, how did it work? Uh, you know, you have the the case study that you present in one of your uh, report. Uh, um, tell me more details on that. Sure, I'd be happy to. The, the U.S. Coast Guard is responsible for a wide range of missions in the United States. They're a maritime military organization, but they're also a law enforcement organization, an intelligence organization. They conduct some environmental monitoring and, and regulation um, or enforcement of regulation. So they've got this very diverse mission set. Um, and they're, they're relatively small by U.S. military standards anyway. Um, but up until, you know, about 20 years ago, they were very focused on the short-term future. They had a very ingrained culture of, of reactivity. So they would wait for, an, you know, they were, they were always conducting their missions on a daily basis, but they would also be called in for things like hurricanes or other natural disasters, oil spills, things like that. So they were, they were reactive. They lived in the moment. They operated in the moment. They did that um, very well. About 20 years ago, uh, the then new head of the Coast Guard, a man named Admiral James Loy, came in and, and said, you know, simply reacting to the future as it happens does not serve us well. We need to reorient ourselves to, to craft better strategy for the long term so that we're better prepared for surprise, for the unexpected, um, especially as the world becomes more uncertain. And so they, uh, they engaged actually an outside consulting firm and they conducted a, a sort of classic scenario planning process where they did consider critical uncertainties about the future and how they might combine to create worlds uh, 20 years down the line. And in response to the scenarios that they, they crafted, they drew up a list of what they called robust strategies. So things that would serve them well, no matter what happened. And a, a lot of those strategies were not like remarkably novel. Some of them were, you know, let's just have a more, you know, agile human resources system because we don't know what skills we'll need in the future. But what the process did was, was help to surface some of the ideas that had been going around in the organization for a long time and, and socialize them among top leaders. Um, and then when surprises did happen, um, for example, when the 9-11 attacks uh, happened in the United States and, and dramatically changed the Coast Guard's mission, among other things, um, they were they were better prepared to adapt for that. And so that's a program that's continued now for uh, going on, I guess, 23 years. Um, and they're increasingly, you know, in times of uncertainty, turning to, in their case, specifically scenario planning to help them develop strategies for dealing with the future. So if I am understanding correctly, uh, scenario planning and this exploration of uh, possible, probable, or, or plausible futures is, is not much the, the outcome, but it's more the process of opening people's mind and how people frame the certain situation in the short or long-term futures and increase adaptability in, uh, in, in their way of working or you know, preparing and strategizing for what next? That's exactly right. Uh, the, the process does produce these scenarios of the future, these stories that we write, these narratives that we write about the future. But the point is not necessarily the narratives themselves. The point is sort of, as you say, in constructing them, you challenge your own assumptions about what is possible, what is plausible. Uh, that process refocuses you perhaps on what is important in the present and what you ought to be doing. 
Um, it, it, as you say, it, it sort of pushes your thinking beyond its usual boundaries that we all sort of find ourselves trapped in uh, when we're operating day to day. Um, and it also provides a, a common language for an organization and its leaders to talk about the future, to consider the future, to strategize for the future. And that is, you know, that can be in, invaluable. That can be invaluable. Indeed, they become really important for the organization to reach this common language uh, to align on the terminology used on uh, on the practices and on the value um, of those practices why why do we do this in the first place but you know this common language it's uh, it is hard to be to be reached sometimes especially in large organization where there are subcultures uh, sub languages you know so it's, it's, you know, it seems to be that something can be lost in translation, uh, but we know the importance of having a common language from which to build upon or, or to use to build upon for new strategy, uh, for new innovation project. But that's, you know, we all agree on, uh, on, on that. So the question now that comes to mind is, how can we embed this common language concept? How can we build a common language? You know, how can everyone can be literate on that language within big or large or, or public or private organization? This is one of the, the more challenging questions that, that I think uh, those of us who are interested in strategic foresight and scenario planning faces is how do you get started? Um, and I think there is an impression among some folks that, you know, orienting an organization toward the future is a, is a massive undertaking that requires, you know, total organizational change. Um, and on the one hand, that I, I can see the point, it is a, a reorientation. On the other hand, um, you know, what we saw, say, with the Coast Guard was that it was the initiative of a single leader who was able to to you know push it on the organization and and use just a handful of individuals and and really not you know not tremendous resources financially to to help develop these strategies for the future but i i would say that in my in my research what i have found is that the beginning of the process the initiation that that catalyst often comes from a you know single individual or a small handful of individuals who believe that there is value in thinking long-term and thinking more about the future. And they have to have significant um, or, or sufficient rather, uh, you know, power within the organization to, to begin the process. Once the process begins, once it's underway or once it's even gone, you know, through a few cycles, it often develops its own momentum and it, it continues on. But there's always a need for champions of strategic foresight. It's, it's something you shouldn't think that it, you would need champions for the future. You wouldn't think that you would need to tell organizational leaders, you know, you ought to think beyond the next quarter or the next, you know, year. Um, but it turns out that you do. Um, and so that's, that's, I think, the starting place often for a lot of organizations. And so having a champions inside organization is highly important uh, to get the energy on, on the practice, you know, promote it within the organization and move it uh, across uh, the organization. It, it is also important uh, 
to to do this exercise in a iterative way. Uh, that's that's my understanding from your words. It's not that strategic foresight. Scenario planning in this way is done only once. You know, it, it is a one-off exercise that is done for this specific project or for this specific strategy, and then the outcome are discussed, evolved, uh, changed, modified um, in that in that moment. And then they can go in a, in a door, but uh, those outcomes should be in contest, con- constant evolution, because that's the power of scenario planning is actually exploring those alternative futures, and then uh, keeping iterating on them, uh, unless uh, um, the value, the intrinsic potential of uh, scenario planning. Uh, get lost. At least that this is my sense of the power of strategic foresight and scenario planning in this specific case. I completely agree. And I think what does happen in a lot of organizations is that they do one exercise and then its findings, perhaps, you know, however valuable they may be, are even they're enacted or they're just put on a on a shelf. Um, and the truth is obviously that the, the present is constantly evolving and the plausible futures are constantly evolving. And so for the for the process of strategic foresight really to have the the effect that it can have i think that iteration is is crucial it's an ongoing ongoing process and i think one of the benefits of of you know getting that process started is you know you can begin to build a base of support beyond initial champions but people who have been exposed to different ways of thinking about the future such that they become um supporters as as well and and fuel for future iterations so let's say that we have defined the intrinsic value of uh, scenario planning and what's the benefit of doing it um, but attached to to doing it and to build a team to organize uh, workshops um, of scenario planning there's a cost attached to it so even if there is a, a strong champions that can promote strategic foresight and scenario planning within the organizations, then of course, everything which uh, a gatekeeper, whether it is um, manager, a senior manager, a uh, VP, uh, or the CEO uh, himself or, or, or herself, how can we how can we motivate, um, also from an economic point of view, you know, the classic, uh, what's my return of Im- investment question, you know, how can we motivate people that are more sensible to, to numbers? So how can, yeah, what's the secret sauce of um, strategic foresight and scenario planning in regards to that economic return that many in organizations look at as a value to promote uh, innovation, uh, novel ideas, and also way of uh, of doing things. I think the the return on investment question, the the ROI question, is one of the most difficult and and persistent questions that strategic foresight practitioners face. 
And it's enormously difficult to answer in a quantitative way, because as you said, you know, many of the returns may come in the long uh, run. Uh, what's more, how do you value something like changing a, a person's perceptions of you know the strategic space that an organization is operating in how do you how do you you know put a number on that and so you know i've heard a, a variety of different responses to the roi question um you know one of them is, is simply it's the wrong question um because what we should be thinking about is you know changing people's you know mental models um of, of how the world works or at least challenging them if not if not changing them and then questioning assumptions and developing that common language about the future that we we discussed um are, are really ends in and of themselves i mean i would also note that i have yet to meet an organizational leader of any stripe whether it's a ceo or a military officer or a uh, you know the you know someone at an ngo who says our organization thinks too much about the future i mean that's never what you hear what you hear is we think too much about the short term we're swamped by emails and social media and the fire that we need to put out today and we're constantly trapped in the moment um you know the ability to step back and look at the long term is really um it's it, it can seem like a luxury. I think it's it's a necessity, frankly, um, to step back from the immediacy of the short term. But then we also have you know data showing that that companies that focus more on the long term suffer economic. I'm sorry, suffer companies that focus on the short term suffer more than those that focus on the long term. They leave money on the table. People remain unemployed. When it comes to public policy, we obviously see short-sighted public policies that lead to long-term costs, both economic and, and otherwise. Um, again, often very difficult to value those things, but there have been efforts to do so. I think that you know, a, final, you know, a final avenue, but one that really needs um, more shoring up are examples of where scenario planning or strategic foresight has been successful. And there are a lot of those, but they often take the form of anecdotes and they can often be dismissed as stories or like explanations sort of like post hoc explanations of why something was successful, but there's not really proof for it. And so this is where I think, you know, that, that the rigor of academic research becomes more important where we can take things from simply being anecdotes or stories or even case studies um, to being, uh, you know, in a position where we can say, you know, more definitively, these are the benefits that you see for these reasons. That's great, Peter. And I'm curious uh, if we can uh, link what we discussed so far with, uh, with an exploration of what the future of strategic foresight could look like. You know, you mentioned the need to have uh, more solid, sound case studies that can be represented practice and inherent value that we discuss, you know, uh, the benefit of, of doing it. So what um, what and how does it require and does it look uh, the future of strategic foresight for you? I think there are a few avenues that can be pursued. I think that that one avenue, um, you know, which is the one that I pursued with the Coast Guard um, is the in-depth case study where you 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 go sort of in a, in a rigorous fashion deep enough through the research that you can begin to suggest why certain successes could be attributable to strategic foresight it's it's not it's not proof um qualitative inductive work is is not causal but it can generate hypotheses about 
why strategic foresight is valuable that then could perhaps be turned into hypotheses that could be tested in a in a deductive fashion and that might provide you know more social science uh sort of power to to some of the the case for strategic foresight but i you know i think that the the key thing is really looking deeply and asking how and why strategic foresight works or or does not work and and you know having the the willingness to question that it it might not always work it might not always be the thing that makes the difference um and sort of you know sort of a uh, a self-reflection um as we go through our research um that we're not simply you know proponents of the method because we happen to find the method like or the the, the practice interesting or powerful you know for ourselves um but because we have found that it is useful through dispassionate research and analysis and in that regards peter do you see more appropriate the use of strategic foresight in um, public organizations where you know for example there is a policymaker that uh, developed and, and implement some policies uh, for private uh, for the private sectors or do you see the private sector itself uh, be a beneficiaries of using strategic foresight in their in their common uh, operational uh, activities and how literate people should be across an organization so uh, like you know building this common language should everyone be able to to speak the language i think that um it's challenging to ask everyone to be literate there's a i mean there's a great attractiveness to everyone developing a degree of of futures literacy but to some extent because of this at least at this point because of this need for champions because of this need for those people to have the the influence to get the ball rolling when it comes to processes i think that you know some uh, a greater degree of top down experimentation with strategic foresight methods would be would be valuable um you know i recently published a a long report on strategic foresight within the us government um and with you know each agency that i looked at what i found was basically like like the coast guard there are pockets of strategic foresight scattered around the united states government and you know everywhere from the centers for disease control and prevention um to the secret service which is responsible for protecting the president and other political vips um to the office of personnel management um to you know various components of of the military um in, including the coast guard but i think that the, the there's no whole of nation approach to strategic foresight that you know as as someone who who's you know living and working in the united states as an american i say i i want the country to be thinking more about where it wants to be in the future and what the future might look like and how it can best prepare for that. Um and my my conclusion um from the report was that if for for that to take place it really would would take the support of the president um to to get things rolling because there are simply too many crises ongoing on a day-to-day -day basis that that policymakers are are dealing with. Um for for them to naturally take up a study of let's say 20 years into the future that that does seem like a luxury not a necessity i i happen to disagree 
But I also understand that when you know the house is burning, first you have to put out the fire. Um, and, and then later you can think about, well, maybe we should build the next house a little bit, you know, to be more fire resistant or, or what have you. Um, so, but, you know, fortunately the, the country is, is big enough and there are enough smart people in it that it's possible to have parallel efforts where you have people that are both dealing with crisis and people who are dealing with the long-term. And, and the, the one crucial point that I want to make here is that I think that thinking about the long-term helps us deal with crises in the short-term that there is a temporal link between these two things, between future thought and present action. They're not distinct. They're not totally separate activities, even though they're often seen that way. And that's why thinking about the long term can seem like a luxury. But if, in fact, it'll help prepare you for short term crisis, for surprise, what have you, it's it's in fact uh, necessary. Um, so that's that's sort of what I've been thinking about with with respect to the United States. And, and I think, you know, to some extent, one can extrapolate out from that to other countries or to organizations or, or to companies. But but um, uh, I think that it would be a huge boon for the United States government to take up strategic foresight in a more dedicated way. It appears to me that it's a very delicate balance between um, short and long term thinking and doing. Um, and I like this idea that we are talking about uh, strategic foresight, you know, thinking about the future. Just when we enter the adult life, you know, we are talking this associated to, to government, we're talking about this associated to industry. Um, but the power of, of the futures, uh, I think, stays and lies within giving to the future generation the opportunity to hold these capabilities, you know. We talk about being literate, you know. It's, it's something that we start becoming literate and knowing how to, to speak, to, to write at a young age, you know, elementary school, that's where, where we start our process of becoming literate. But in, in the school sector, you know, it's quite a rarity to have strategic foresight or let's say future infused uh, curriculum. So <clears throat> I see a benefit in actually giving those skills, those capabilities to the young generation, which are the ones that actually are going to, to run the futures and make decisions in a future stage. So how better is now preparing them to have such capabilities and understanding of, of, of the power of framing and thinking of the situations and arrive to conclusion and make decisions that are in the present but are rationalized on some futures uh, opportunities and, and future scenarios. So, it would be interesting to explore more of uh, the, the power of, of uh, embedding uh, future curriculum in a uh, university and, and, and the wider education system. I think it would be fantastic to embed it early on because I do think there is a you know, great opportunity for cross-pollination between foresight and any number of disciplines, you know, whether it's, you know, 
you know, having to do with, with, you know, ecology or epidemiology or, you know, the future of the financial system or you know, any number of things that, that you can think about. And, you know, you cited the, the definition of strategic foresight that I use earlier. And one of the verbs in that definition is to shape the future. And so often when we think about the future, we're thinking about it almost defensively, as in we need to prepare for what's going to happen to us. But of course, there's no reason that thinking about the future shouldn't be aspirational as well, that we don't have some degree of agency in shaping the future. We, we do. And so when you talk about younger generations, I mean, this is one way to you know, corral those aspirations in a, in a constructive way, to, to put them together, to give form to them, to answer, well, if we want to make, say, social change, economic change, environmental change, what have you, what are the uncertainties that we are going to face in those efforts? What are the possible roadblocks? But what are also the possible opportunities um, we can we can take in in constructing the type of world that we want to be living in? Thank you, Peter. So far, it's been a fabulous conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I yes do believe the opportunity and and the power of uh, embedding early on. Uh, uh, foresight or future thinking in the educational system uh, to really empower and enable the young generation uh, as they grow up and learn more with those skills that are um, beneficial to develop uh, a better futures, better in terms uh, maybe more sustainable, more inclusive. But yeah, I do, I do believe I would like to see more of these uh, practices. Uh, embedded into curriculum so yeah thank you so much for for the conversation before closing i usually ask uh, this question to get to know more my guest uh, um, less than um, uh, a professional point of view you know but more from a personal point of view um, i usually ask and i'm curious about uh, what are what is the last or or the current book uh, every, anyone uh, reads and I see many <laughs> many books behind uh, behind your back so what have you been reading uh, recently or are you currently reading it's it's true there are there are a lot of books here um, and I, I tend to be reading um, a few things at any one time um, right now I'm, I'm taking a look at or taking a, a look again at a book um, uh, written by Robert Jervis, who was a political scientist who died just a few weeks ago. Uh, and he's famous uh, in, in part uh, for a book that he wrote called uh, Perception and Misperception in International Politics. And one of the, the points of, of that book is that uh, the, the traditional political science model of, of you know, relations between states needs to account for individual psychology and the motivations and the perceptions of individual policymakers. And I, it doesn't sound like something that is necessarily a strategic foresight book, but I think that in trying to perceive accurately uh, the intentions of both our allies and our adversaries to sort of reconcile this problem of, of misperception requires imagination. And ultimately, when we're talking about strategic foresight, we're talking about the cultivation of imagination. And so I like I'm reading this or rereading it uh, in part with the view that uh, imagination is an undervalued strategic resource um, at, at that level. So it's a, a, a book that I've read before, but, but one that I'm uh, applying a new lens to, given what I've been working on lately.
that's fascinating. I'm, I'm gonna put that on uh, on my reading list. Uh, can we cultivate imagination? It's a fantastic question, and I wish I had a definitive answer. I do believe that we can cultivate imagination. I do believe that you know simply. Um, I believe that it is often a case of learning by doing. So, for example, whether it's going through a scenario planning process or playing a war game or, you know, envisioning an alternative future that, that you aspire to, these are all things that cultivate imagination, um, which is, a, I think, a, a facet that, you know, you, you spoke of, of, you know, the next generation and how they're, you know, the educational process they go through. It's, it's an, we don't put uh, students perhaps through enough training of imagination and and the deficits that result can can unfortunately uh leave us wanting they can they can cause problems so it's it's something that i i do believe can be cultivated and i very much hope we will do more of it and with that peter let me thank you so much for your time and your passion and dedication you put in making a contribution uh, to uh, the practice so yeah thank you thank you very much and you mentioned before cross-pollinate And this podcast uh, sits on the purpose of cross-pollinating different disciplines and make an impact uh, and enable people thinking and doing in a more innovative way, or at least uh, offering that opportunity to learn from from others. So it's uh, learning by by doing and learning by by listening. Uh, Thank you so much, Peter, and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. The briefing today unplugs people's creativity by embracing the wonder of change. It seeks inspiration from maverick innovators and change makers to share their stories, experiences, and dreams. 